I almost feel like apologizing for this message. We're going through 1 John, and I actually, before I knew that I would um, go through a series through 1 John, actually addressed this passage some time ago. And uh, so some of it might sound familiar. I've tried to rework it. Uh, the text is the text. I couldn't change the text. God wouldn't allow that. So it's the, it is what it is, but I've tried to change it up some. I hope, I hope this will not be for you. Those of you who heard it before will not be redundant. First um, John, First John 2. The exact moment in time someone becomes a Christian, a spiritual maturation process is started. From beginning as a spiritual infant and then progressing to spiritual adulthood, this is the process. And that maturing process goes through different stages. Some of those basic stages are mentioned in this text, 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14. Notice verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. I want us to notice that there are three distinct categories of Christians mentioned in these verses. Those three groups are little children, young men, and fathers. Little children, young men, and then fathers. These three categories represent three different stages of spiritual maturation. And since this passage focuses on someone's spiritual growth, the appropriate question is, how does maturation happen? How does someone mature as a Christian? How does someone progress from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood? There's a maturation equation on the note sheet, and if this sounds familiar to some of us, it's because this is from our Essentials to Discipleship course. Notice the equation, knowledge times obedience plus time equals a mature Christian. Knowledge times, meaning the multiplication sign, knowledge times obedience plus the addition sign, Knowledge times obedience plus the element of time equals a mature Christian. Notice this equation begins at knowledge, and that means biblical knowledge. Philippians 1 and verse 9 reads, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Prolific author and commentator, Dr. Warren Worsby, who died not long ago, uh, former pastor of Moody Church, Chicago. Dr. Worsby made the statement, if Satan can keep a Christian ignorant, then he can keep him immature. I agree. The average Christian doesn't know what he believes, and if he does, he doesn't have a clue as to why he believes it, and that's problematic. Understand, we don't come to church just to see friends, although we do. 
We aren't here just to experience God, and we should. But in part, we're here to be fed in a spiritual sense. We are here to learn. It all starts at biblical knowledge. I might add, if these messages from me or Pastor Chris on Sunday morning represent the total spiritual nourishment we receive until next Sunday morning, meaning if we don't feed ourselves from other sources throughout the week, then we're going to be malnourished as a Christian. Sunday morning isn't enough. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I've mentioned him before, was a famous German Lutheran pastor, brilliant theologian, an anti-Nazi resistant. He was arrested by the German Gestapo and executed. He was hung to death just 23 days before the Nazis surrendered. Bonhoeffer made this statement, because I am a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word in Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. That was the importance Bonhoeffer placed on biblical knowledge. Uh, I suggest uh, getting a Bible app. I have two of them on my phone. Because there are down times when I'm waiting for an appointment or something, I can just, I pull my phone out and I can read a biblical text. Um, if someone has a long commute, I would suggest getting the Bible on audio. But, there, but we need to, to be uh, maturing in knowledge. Knowledge in and of itself, though, is not enough. There's also the factor of obedience. Remember, it's knowledge times obedience. Obedience is defined as doing what God tells me to do, doing it when He tells me to do it, and doing it with a right heart attitude. That means that uh, partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed or procrastinated obedience is disobedience. Doing what God tells me to do, doing it when He tells me to do it, and doing it with a right heart attitude. And attitude matters. I don't think that definition can be improved upon. But more often than not, obedience is the point that the breakdown occurs. So often we're not acting on what we have learned that God wants us to do. In some instances, we have been educated past our commitment to obedience. Knowledge times obedience plus the strategic element of time. There's a time factor in this equation because growth and maturation is a process. A child isn't mature six months after birth. And a Christian isn't mature six months after his spiritual birth. It is impossible to receive salvation one moment and then be considered a mature Christian in another month or so. That, that's not possible because maturation requires more time than that. There has to be significant time pass in order for this maturation process to evolve. The problem is sometimes those of us that are older Christians expect too much too soon from newer Christians. We need to be more patient. We need to permit more time to transpire in order for maturation to occur. I need to add, though, that even though maturation is a process that requires time, time alone doesn't make someone more mature. 
Because X number of months times zero is still zero. Time in and of itself cannot create maturation. I read a bumper sticker that said, I might be getting older, but I refuse to grow up. And some Christians have adopted that attitude. I have met people that have been Christians an entire adult lifetime and are still spiritual infants. Fred Smith, I mentioned him this past Sunday. An author who was considered an authority on leadership made this statement. I don't think God is that interested in our success. He's more interested in our maturity. So the maturation equation is knowledge times obedience plus time equals a mature Christian. Now notice John cites three different stages of spiritual maturation. Three different stages represented in three different groups. Group one, representing the first stage of maturation, are immature Christians. Immature Christians. This is the group mentioned in verses 12 and 13. Notice verse 12, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Verse 13, I write to you little children because you have known the Father. I want us to notice something. The little children mentioned in verse 12 aren't the same little children that are mentioned in verse 13. These are two different categories of Christians. The phrase little children that is mentioned in verse 12 means little born ones. And since all Christians have experienced a spiritual birth, a rebirth that is spiritual at salvation, that phrase little children in verse 12 is a generic reference to all Christians, all of us. But in verse 13, John has in mind a particular subgroup of Christians. The phrase little children that is used there means little immature ones and little ignorant ones, meaning someone that is still under the tutorage of spiritual teachers and mentors. The first stage in this text, represented in this first group, are the little children, not in verse 12 so much, but in verse 13, meaning group number one represent immature Christians. Now, don't miss this. Some of these immature Christians are people that are brand new to the Christian faith. We would call them recent converts. So to describe them as being immature is not something negative. It isn't a criticism about them. If someone hasn't been a Christian long enough to mature as a Christian, then it's not a bad thing to be considered immature because that's normal. All Christians were immature at some point. I, I just mentioned Alex, Alex and Ta Taylor Ann. Taylor Ann's in the first service because she's in charge of our children's ministry now and is involved second service with our children. But uh, Alex and Taylor Ann have two sons, Char Carter and George. Now, Carter uh, is scheduled, I understand, to be three in March. I had it this past Sunday after church, second service. I had a conversation with Carter. Um, and he told me what he learned, what he had learned that morning in Sunday school. 
I was impressed. It was very impressive uh, that he could remember what he was taught. But if I said to his parents, um, I said, you know, it's apparent. Carter is a bright child. Carter is an intelligent child, but I think he's still immature. It's doubtful his parents would be offended at that because a child just 34 months of age cannot be something other than immature. But if Carter was 26 and still immature, then that's a problem and his parents would be concerned. Not sure what they do to him, but something. Um, in the same sense, some Christians are older in a chronological sense. In that sense, I am an older Christian because I received Jesus six and a half decades ago. But spiritual longevity doesn't necessarily equal spiritual maturation. Remember, spiritual longevity, meaning the amount of time we log as a Christian, doesn't necessarily equal spiritual maturation. This first group called little children represents both classifications of immature Christians. And that means uh, both those that haven't been Christians long enough to mature and so are legitimately immature. And it also means those that are older in the Christian faith as to actual time being a Christian but are still immature and shouldn't be. Now notice what John said about both groups of immature Christians in verse 13. I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. It is an experiential fact. A small child knows his father, meaning he recognizes his own father. He is able to distinguish his father from other fathers. He understands who his daddy is. The problem is that besides being able to recognize his own father and some other basic stuff, a small, small child has extremely limited knowledge. If he's an infant or a toddler, he crawls around on the floor, uh, and anything that is not tied down, he crams into his mouth and tries to eat it. It doesn't matter to him because he's totally immature. He has limited knowledge. He doesn't know what is or what isn't good for him. I read about some Dutch children that uncovered an unexploded World War II artery, artillery shell that, unknown to them, was still active and contained serious explosives. Those small children, not knowing, tossed it around as a game toy until an adult got suspicious and called the authorities. It was then confiscated and exploded under safe conditions. Understand that a spiritual child is no different. A spiritual child recognizes his spiritual father, who is God, the ultimate father. According to verse 12, all spiritual children should understand that their sins are forgiven. But aside from some of the elementary basics of Christianity, an immature Christian has extremely limited spiritual knowledge. A new convert said to me once in another congregation, said to me once after a sermon, Pastor, that was one hell of a sermon. Now, he didn't understand that 
that probably wasn't the most appropriate thing to say to a pastor. Probably one heaven of a sermon would have been better, but that's okay. He's just a spiritual infant. I understood that, so I didn't correct him. I just said, thank you. I appreciate that. But there's a problem. Because of that kind of naivety and gullibility, immature Christians are susceptible to false teachers and false teaching. Margaret Singer is an adjunct psychology professor emeritus at UC Berkeley who has studied false cults for decades. And she estimates that there are between 2,000 and 5,000 false cults or heretical sects in the United States alone. And newer Christians, because they are so undiscerning due to their immaturity, are susceptible to those proselytizing groups. Uh, This region um, was settled by Mormons. So Mormonism is, is common here. Mormonism actually proselytizes more converts from evangelical Christian churches in 12 months than evangelicals do from Mormonism in four decades. Islam now has 1.8 billion adherents. Imagine. Islam is increasing at epidemic proportions. There are now more Muslims in the United States than there are Episcopalians. And the Episcopal Church is one of this nation's oldest mainline denominations. This is the age of the cults. The isms, asms, and spasms are all around us preying on new Christians because most Christians are infantile and unlearned spiritual babies. And then there's false teaching even inside the church. I see people getting caught up in all sorts of aberrant teaching. Understand, all Christians start out as spiritual children because we have to begin somewhere. That's where we start. And unfortunately, it's also where some Christians stop. I mean, for some of us, the maturation process has been severely retarded. And in some cases, it has completely stopped. The Associated Press carried this article from Houston. The article said a 19-year-old secret has just ended with the death of a 3-foot, 13-pound man whose parents kept his existence from the public for fear that he might be taken away. Riley Anthony Nelson died on Friday morning. He still wore diapers and he still slept in a crib. And remember, he was 19. It was so sad that this child never matured. He started life as an infant, and he ended life as an infant. He never grew up. I've seen this happen so often to Christians. Someone receives Jesus, and then no one disciples him. No one invests in him to assist him in this maturation process. This person never gets plugged into a solid church. And this Christian goes out almost exactly where he came in because he never got past the ABCs of the Christian faith. Group one, representing stage one of this maturation process, are the little children. And these little children are Christians that are immature in the faith. 
And that's where we all start, but it's not where we should all stop. We need to continue to mature. So group two, this second group representing the second stage of maturation, are maturing Christians. Maturing Christians. Notice in the middle part of verse 13, it reads, I write to you young men. Notice in the middle part of verse 14, it reads, I have written to you young men. This word men in these verses is not a gender designation. In the original language, this is a generic word, and it means both male and female. And if you didn't know, that's all there is, male and female. So this includes us all. The young men mentioned here represent maturing Christians. This second group represent people that are definitely engaged in the process of continued maturation. John then mentions three characteristics that this group manifests. Don't miss them. One, maturing Christians manifest spiritual strength. Those that are maturing manifest spiritual strength. A maturing Christian demonstrates a certain degree of spiritual strength. Notice in verse 14, John said, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. Maturing Christians are strong and robust Christians. Strength has always fascinated me since I was a child. The words muscular Christianity were first coined in the mid-1800s. Muscular Christianity describes a commitment to Christianity in combination with masculinity, fitness, and athleticism. Muscular Christianity had a strong influence in starting Fellowship of Christian Athletes and also the men's movement some of us remember called Promise Keepers. And different men have represented muscular Christianity, such as Paul Anderson. Paul Anderson, born 1939, died 1994. Uh, this is Paul. Um, Paul was 5'10", 5'10 He weighed 360. He, those thighs are 36 inches in circumference. He had a 64-inch chest. He was a large man. I might add, even at that body weight, he could dunk a basketball. Um, uh, in the 1950s, Paul was an Olympic weightlifting champion. He was also a world weightlifting champion. And I believe uh, Paul Anderson was the strongest man in modern times, in part because he never used performance-enhancing drugs. He never did, as all elite strength athletes do now. And that's not a misstatement. All elite strength athletes use steroids. Um, some of them are good at masking, so they aren't detected during tests, but all of them do. No one in a natural state can compete with them now. Paul Anderson could. Um, I remember a friend of mine, a lifelong friend of mine, uh, happened to see Paul at an exhibition at a lifting competition in East Texas. He said it was amazing. He said it was time for him to come out. He came out wearing socks, no shoes, socks on a slick gym floor. Um, 
no lifting belts, no knee wraps, as raw as could be. He came out, he did full, not parallel, full deep squats for reps with 900 pounds. I mean, that's insane strength. No one alive now can do that. Even those that are steroid fed. Um, in addition to the traditional lifts, he did a back lift in 1957 of 6,270 pounds, the most weight a human has ever lifted, 930 pounds more than anyone else. Um, three times world's strongest man, Bill Kazmaier, uh, who did use performance-enhancing drugs. He said about Paul Anderson, quote, he was the king of strength, but more amazing was his total commitment as a Christian. And that commitment as a Christian um, resulted in 1961. He started a Christian home for troubled teenagers in Georgia that still exists, and it's thriving. Paul Anderson, on an annual basis, would conduct 500 speaking engagements, sharing his Christian faith to audiences, and doing demonstrations of his incredible strength. I was fortunate to attend three of those events. Um, one thing that he did that I found fascinating, he would bring up a, a, a piece of wood, a two-by-six, meaning two inches thick, six inches across, and, and about maybe 18 inches in length. He would then take a 16-penny nail he would wrap a handkerchief around the head of the nail. He would place the head of that nail in that handkerchief in the palm of his hand. And then in one blow, he would drive that nail completely through that two-by-six piece of wood. I was fortunate I was able to handle uh, at, at one of those occasions uh, that piece of wood. The nail was sticking out at least a quarter of an inch on the other side of the wood. That's phenomenal that a human can do that. Um, I had the privilege of actually meeting Paul Anderson in person uh, at his motel room one time. Other recent examples of muscular Christianity would be tightrope enthusiast Nick Walinda uh, and countless other men whose names we probably wouldn't recognize. But John isn't talking about human strength. As impressive as that is, John is talking about commenting on something more important and something more permanent than human strength. And that's spiritual strength and spiritual stamina. And he said that maturing Christians are strong and robust Christians. Question, how strong are you? Are you strong enough to be an amateur evangelist? Or are you still a closet Christian hiding behind spiritual cowardice and afraid to mention Jesus in public? Are you strong enough to fight off discouragement and depression? Or if problems come, do you push the panic button? Are you strong enough to trust God even if others around you don't? Are you strong enough to turn away from sexual temptation until marriage? Are you strong enough to stop a self-destructive bad habit? Are you strong enough to fulfill your commitment in marriage? Are you strong enough to stand alone, if necessary, against peer pressure? Are you strong enough to handle personal rejection? Are you strong enough to fulfill your financial commitments? 
Or do you have an entitlement mentality? How strong are you? Are you strong enough to do what you said you would do? How strong are you? Maturing Christians are able to manifest moral, ethical, domestic, professional, and spiritual strength. And are represented by these young men. Second characteristic of a maturing Christian, maturing Christians store up Scripture. Maturing Christians store up Scripture. Verse 14, I have written to you young men, and the Word of God abides in you. This phrase, the Word of God, is a reference to God's actual words in print, on paper, for us to read, and those words are called Holy Scripture, or the Bible. There's no question this phrase, and the Word of God, meaning Scripture, abides in you, means that biblical content is to be a part of us and is to remain in us. That implies consistent hearing Scripture taught, reading Scripture ourselves, and there's no substitute for that. It implies studying Scripture, memorizing Scripture, and even meditating on Scripture. In this particular category, devotees to other religious systems shame most evangelicals. One example, the Islamic holy book is called the Quran, or as it is more often pronounced, the Quran. And the Quran in the Arabic language is about 600 pages in length. It has 114 chapters called surahs, S-U-R-A-H, surahs, 6,236 verses and 80,000 words. It's smaller than our Bible, but it's not a small book. It is extremely common to find Muslims who have memorized the entire Quran verbatim. Muslims who have memorized the entire Quran word for word. There are Muslim schools that from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m., Monday through Friday and throughout the summer, specialize in teaching children to memorize the entire Quran. And most evangelicals cannot quote anything other than a couple verses. The Quran matters to Muslims, and the Bible should matter to us. A third characteristic, maturing Christians overcome Satan. Maturing Christians overcome Satan. Verse 14, I have written to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Remember the ultimate wicked one is Satan himself. 1 Peter 5, 8, this is a warning to us. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Simon Peter made a comment on our spiritual struggle. And first he said to be sober. Being sober means being serious-minded. Being serious-minded. Don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean Christians can't have a good time. Christianity encourages fun and games and good times and pleasure but without hangovers, without withdrawal symptoms, without unwanted pregnancies, without sexually transmitted diseases, and without jail time. Christians can have fun, yes, but Christians also understand that Christianity is a serious business. 
And because of that, we need to be more intentional in our Christian faith. Then Simon Peter said, be vigilant. Be vigilant means to be alert, to be aware. Someone said there are three categories of people in the church. One are people that make things happen. Two are people that watch things happen. And three are people that wander around in a daze going, what's happening? What's happening? Christians are to be constantly aware of what is happening around us. That's the reason I preach or speak to the culture. That's the reason I address current events. Even if those matters have political ramifications, I don't care. Peter continues, because your adversary, the devil, adversary means enemy, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This passage teaches that Satan stalks us like a predator, wanting to eat us alive. Gordon Rand Van Roof said, Satan tests every soul that comes to Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is no picnic. Becoming a Christian is the best thing that can happen to anyone. But it's not a piece of cake. It's not a leisure stroll through the park. Being a Christian is a lifelong spiritual struggle against the forces of darkness. But if we're fully committed to spiritual maturation, then we must determine to overcome Satan. Someone announced to his friend, I'm not afraid of Satan. His friend said, that's, that's good. But more important, the question is, is Satan afraid of you? Most Christians um, are absolutely no threat to Satan. And so we don't frighten him. Professional baseball player and evangelist Billy Sunday, he was saved at the uh, Pacific Garden Rescue Mission in Chicago. Um, and became a famous evangelist uh, in the beginning 1900s. He was a predecessor to Billy Graham. Billy Sunday said this, I'm going to hit the devil as long as I have fist. I'm going to kick him as long as I've got feet. I'm going to bite him as long as I've got teeth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'm going to gum him to death. Mr. Sunday was determined not to let Satan defeat him. And that's what the second category of Christians does. He overcomes Satan. Group three, representing the third stage of spiritual maturation, are the most mature Christians. The most mature Christians. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who was from the beginning. Question, and just who is from the beginning? God. Only God is eternal. No one else. The fathers mentioned in verses 13 and 14 represent the most mature Christians. These people are at the upper end of the maturation scale. And in domestic language, these most mature ones are called fathers. Please notice that twice it is said that these fathers have known God. These are men and women, 
that know God in a closer and more intimate sense than do others. One half century ago, J.A. Packard, who died recently, authored a best-selling book entitled Knowing God, because that is to be our objective. John implies that the most mature Christian is someone that knows God in a deep, intimate sense. Notice Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man, the wise man, this is representative of the intellectual elite, professors, scientists, uh, Nobel Prize laureates, uh, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Some translations render this word glory as boast. Let not the wise man boast or brag in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man, the mighty man, that's the, the politicians, the uh, top military brass, the corporate CEOs, let not the mighty man glory or boast in his might. Nor let the rich man, the rich man, those are the multimillionaires and billionaires. There are now, according to Forbes, 735 billionaires in this nation. And uh, I'm not one of them. Uh, nor let the rich man glory or boast in his riches. Verse 24, but let him who glories glory or boast in this that he understands and knows me. We have nothing to boast about unless we can legitimately boast that we know God. The most important question we can answer is, as a Christian, do we know God in a relational, deep sense, an intimate sense? Salvation is just the beginning. Knowing God is an ongoing process. That doesn't mean knowing God in a superficial sense. Not this nod God group that attends church, acknowledges His presence, and then forgets about Him as soon as the service is finished. But knowing God in a sincere, authentic, close, intimate, personal, relational sense. Because a most mature Christian does. Probably most people in this room, even non-football fans, are probably aware that just two weeks ago tomorrow, uh, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin uh, was injured in a game uh, against the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday Night Football. He literally went into full cardiac arrest on the field at age 24. He needed CPR immediately, and then an AED. AED is an automatic external defibrillator machine. We have one here in case of an emergency. But, but those procedures were necessary in order to resuscitate him. Under normal circumstances, DeMar would have died on that field. But God used some highly trained medical professionals to save his life. He's now home in Buffalo recovering. He has now even visited the Bills facility and met his teammates. He's doing fantastic. Cincinnati coach Zach Taylor, who I respect, was asked about DeMar's recovery at a, at a 
press conference, and he said this, quote, God is great. He works miracles. And for certain, this was a miracle. It was miraculous. I don't normally watch uh, Monday Night Football, but the outcome of this particular game, Buffalo and Cincinnati, uh, mattered to the Kansas City Chiefs' attempt to get the one seed in the AFC. And if you know me, I'm all things Chiefs. That's who I am. And I don't apologize for that. So we were watching. I'm trying to get Hopi into football. It's taken an entire half century, but she's learning, <laughs> and uh, she's, she's getting excited. And so we were watching. As soon as DeMar had tackled a wide receiver, uh, a T. Higgins, and it was a hard tackle, um, he stood up from the tackle, and then in probably two seconds, he collapsed, just collapsed backwards onto the ground. And I seen that since this was not a typical football injury. So this is something I do. I, I don't want anyone to be injured on the field. And so I immediately turned down the volume and I said to Hopi, let's pray. And we prayed for him before I knew how serious this was. We prayed for him and we have continued to pray for him. I prayed for him this morning. The medical staffs from both teams rushed onto the field and soon both teams had poured out onto the field. And many men were kneeling and praying, and others were in tears. I still remember seeing the entire Buffalo Bills team, coaches and staffs, all kneeling together to pray as the ambulance drove off the field. That was an amazing sight. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen an ambulance on the field before. No one had. The game was canceled as it should have been. And that one incident that occurred at just five minutes and 58 seconds into the first quarter, that one incident literally motivated more people across this nation to pray than I have seen since 9-11. And that's not an exaggeration. That one incident brought this nation to its knees, and I think that's a good thing. The next morning... The New England Patriots met together as a team, as other teams did, uh, to train. And DeMar was still in critical condition at that time. He was on uh, a ventilator, and uh, he was in a medically induced coma. And so Coach Bill Belichick called his team together uh, during that meeting, and he instructed the men to pray for DeMar. I'm sure the same thing happened in team meetings across the NFL. Coach Belichick asked a veteran wide receiver and special teams standout named Matthew Slater to lead the team in prayer. And there was a reason Matthew Slater was selected. The article I read said, quote, a devout Christian, Matthew Slater's faith has been well documented over his Patriots career. Matthew Slater's faith has been well documented over his Patriots career. Question, has your faith, has your faith in Christ been well documented where you're employed? Has your Christian faith been well documented in your neighborhood? Has your Christian faith been well documented with your friends? If people we rub up against all the time 
don't know that we know God, then we don't know God as we should. Because if we actually know God in a deep, intimate, personal, relational sense, then it's going to be apparent to other people that we know God. As per Matthew Slater, the one person closest to me that was a member of this third classification called fathers, the most mature Christians, was my own biological father. He knew God to a degree I still cannot relate to. I have never achieved where he was at. As he got older, to overhear my father pray was an unforgettable experience. He could hardly pray apart from weeping. Just to hear him talk to God in prayer was so intimate and so personal that just listening to him pray made me feel as though I was intruding on something extremely sacred. I heard about a father that stood in a window and looked outside. He could see his son in the backyard talking to some friends. He overheard one of his friends say, my dad knows the police chief. Isn't that cool? Another friend said, yeah, but my dad knows the mayor, and that's cooler. The two of them turned to this man's son and said, so who does your dad know? This boy thought for a moment and said, my dad knows God. There's no doubt that my own father knew God. But the bigger question I must answer is do I know God in that same sense he did? I want us to bow our heads, would we? Our heads are bowed. Father in heaven, we're all Christians under construction. None of us have arrived at all. None of us are where you ultimately want us to be. But I hope and pray that we found ourselves in one of these three categories, either little children representing immature Christians, either that or young men representing maturing Christians, or possibly category three, uh, fathers, the most mature Christians. So God help us to find ourselves in these verses and to determine to wherever we're at to improve on our status and to make you proud and uh, bring you glory. And I pray that we will. So thank you for your word and what it means to us. And I thank you in the name of Jesus, your special son. Amen. Amen.